Hi, I'm Micah Frankel. Welcome to Cage Minds MMA Show. Whether you're watching or listening, I appreciate you. If you are watching, please like, share, and subscribe. If you are watching, follow, rate, and review. It's all helpful. It's all appreciated. Visit the website. It's cageminds.com. Pick up the merchandise over at nowprince.com slash cage minds or you can still get there by going to nmproshop.com it'll redirect you want more mma podcast listening i suggest mma after hours that i do alongside with mr michael carlisle and if you like pro wrestling we have pro wrestling after hours both of those courtesy of the after hours podcast network and if you like the general sports world Catch up with me on Mike Adams 2.0. Get all three of those wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And on the Mike Adams 2.0, you can hear us every Saturday morning locally here in Albuquerque on 101.7, the team that is ESPN Radio Albuquerque. Let's get to talking about some fights. This past weekend, we'll start off with Friday night. We'll start off Friday. I like to do it by date. We're going to start off with LFA. 128 from the Sanford Pentagon in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The main event was a battle for the vacant LFA lightweight title. That fights uh, Aaron McKenzie against Lucas Clay. The, the first round was a total control effort on the ground by Aaron McKenzie. When we get to the second round, Clay is able to turn things around, start to let his hands go. The straight left was money. Clay then shows his ground abilities in the third with a lot of back control, hunting the rear naked choke. Aaron McKenzie's coach, Rafael Lovato, had said that McKenzie was not chokeable. He didn't get threatened, was able to survive that round to battle back in the fourth where Aaron McKenzie's ground control was the majority of the frame. Now, the fifth round is where we get a little bit of controversy because McKenzie is controlling for a great portion of the round, but he's also having to threaten the takedown and the takedown was being shut down by a clay guillotine. So the more threatening submission came from clay. He had a great front choke at points. He does get put on his back. He's on his feet towards the end of the round and clay does hit McKenzie with a spinning back fist, tried for a jump knee. McKenzie gets into the clinch as the bell expires. The split decision, that fifth round, really could have went either way. Split decision, Aaron McKenzie wins the LFA vacant lightweight title. In the co-main event, it took just 34 seconds for Jimmy Lawson to put Mario Eatman on his back. And with a jackhammer, right hands, just continual ground and pound, gets the quick TKO victory. Richie Miranda had to deal with some adversity, continuous takedowns from Devin Dixon. But in the third round, Miranda was able to snake his arm under the neck and grab the rear naked choke. A big finish there. Also remaining unbeaten was Bryce Meredith. Meredith showed off his wrestling for two rounds against Jay Viola and then started to let the hands go in the third, battled his way into the tie clinch, getting the Muay Thai plum, pulling the head down, some big knees, then firing the one-twos until the ref jumped in. And the night opened up with Bad Gene having to survive some Sarek Shields 
takedowns, but when he got back to his feet, we saw some beautiful striking, a wizard attempt that put Shields' face into the mat by Gene, shutting down the takedown, boom, body, overhand left, shut down the senses, jab to the body. That was a beautiful, right to the sternum, I'm telling you, and then brings the left hook over the top, shut down the senses, bad Gene with the knockout victory. Again, I said that was Friday, so now we'll get to Saturday. Here it is. We'll talk about it, of course, what we're going to spend the most of the show on. UFC 273, the championship double header. Your main event, Alexander Volkanovsky defeats Chan Sun Jung, the Korean zombie, by TKO in the fourth round. The first round it was about leg kicks. It was about jabs. It was about the Volkanovsky left hook scoring and knockdown. You could already see the way that Volkanovsky chains together his patterns to disrupt what you think is the pattern, throwing so much at his opponents at one time, really making your brain just overwork, mixing and matching so many different patterns to the point where you see Volkanovsky freezing up his opposition. The jab and the right hand, the right hook, specifically was impactful in the second round. This is when we start to see the threat of the Volkanovsky. Takedowns come into play. By the third round, this was just a dominant artistic performance of violence from Volkanovsky. As Jung would be able to counter with some big right hands, but the leg kicks, the jab to set up the leg kick because the Jung corner had a very direct plan. They wanted to shut down the Volkanovsky low kick, seeing that that was a pivotal asset of his arsenal. Volkanovsky understood that people are going to eventually want to do this. They're going to try to step inside my leg kicks, land that counter right hand. What can I do? Now Volkanovsky was mixing in the jab. Now we don't think of Volkanovsky as the greatest athlete in the featherweight division. It's his rhythm, his timing, and all the patterns, pains, and fakes that he's throwing at you to disrupt and to disguise what he's really attempting to do that leads to a piercing jab, lunging forward like a fencer, busting up Chan Sun Jung's face. And I got to say, this was one of the finest jabs. It harkens me back to GSP against Jake Shields, GSP against Josh Kostek. GSP when he'd take on these wrestlers and he would just jab their faces off. In the fourth round, after a conversation before the round begins, where you have Judge Mishners, people really heavily looking over Chan Sung Jung. Things were so bad that between the second and third rounds, Jung didn't sit on his stool. He just sat on the floor. There was no more of a demoralizing look than things are going wrong for me in this moment than what we saw the look on Jung's face between the second and third. Excuse me. Quick water break. Takes a lot to talk for 45 minutes in a row, possibly an hour. The fourth round starts up, and it's a one-two down the middle. The big right hand wobbles the head of Chan Sung Jung. Herb Dean rightfully jumps in, stops the fight. We have the TKO in the fourth. 138 to 48. 138 to 48. 90 strike difference in significant strikes. A 152 to 51, 101 strike difference in total landed strikes. 
four for eight on his takedowns from Volkanovsky, who did an excellent job of mixing up the takedowns. He was a heavy takedown ground and pound fighter when we first got introduced to the champion, the former rugby player. He has now became this complex, multifaceted striker. It was a beautiful performance. What's next for Alexander Volkanovsky? You have to assume it is the trilogy fight. It's what everybody wants. The first two both went in Volkanovsky's favor, but in controversial fashion. So that means we all assume Max Holloway is next for Alexander Volkanovsky. I've heard that the champion also was flirting with the idea of returning to 155 pounds where he's been before. I'm not against that idea, but I do say there is some more work to get done at 145 pounds. I don't know if you're trying to get out of the division before you see some of these young up-and-comers that are making their way up the division. If we're starting at the bottom, we're talking about a Bryce Mitchell unbeaten. He's proven a lot, especially with that win over Edson Barbosa. Move a little further up the rankings, you have Arnold Allen. You have Josh Emmett. I feel like there are still some names, still some prospects, and still some danger there left at 145 pounds for Volkanovski hammer away and make that legacy as great as Jose Aldo. Because to me, honestly, if you don't have as many title defenses as Aldo, as DJ, as Anderson Silva, not really talking about hopping divisions. That's just me, though. That's just my outlook on the whole process. I'm not really into a guy who we'll talk about later. You know, you win a title once, you defend it, you let it go, you win one, you defend it, you let him go. Uh, you retire, you unretire. I'd rather see a, a champion. <coughs> Maybe need a little bit of a break. It is a crazy pace and schedule that you keep up with as a UFC champion, but I'd like to see that legacy reach epic proportions as we have in the case of the spider and mighty mouse where those title reigns are nearly it's laughable that they'll never be touched chan sung jung well he's a lot of people's favorite fighters it may be and looks pretty apparent that he will never be the ufc champion but he seems to want to stay in the game and wanting to make fun fights we're talking about some fun fights to make now that the belt is not the optimum goal. Edson Barbosa was a name that we just brought up. Shane Burgos is another great name. I think either one of those would be a fun, stylistic, throwdown kind of matchup and a real winnable fight for a zombie to get that momentum going back in the correct direction. Co-main event. A bit of controversy here, and this was the most controversial decision that I think we had throughout the night. But what happened in this fight, in scoring terms, conflicts what we saw earlier on just in the pay-per-view, just two fights prior. Aljamain Sterling defeats Peter Yawn by split decision. This was an ultra-close fight. That is the first thing that you must acknowledge, because I've been seeing a lot of different opinions about this fight. And people are very confident about their opinion. And I'll tell you, for the first 24 hours, I was really dead set in my opinion as well. But then I started thinking, it could just be a close fight. It really could be a toss of the coin, which fighter got a 10-9 ever so slightly in the all-so-pivotal first round. Now, as I'm watching the fight live, the first round 
we saw a lot of pressure from Peter Yan, who does not throw a strike for about the first two and a half minutes, nearly content to give away the round, just trying to analyze and absorb what Algermaine Sterling is doing. Now, in boxing, this has been well acknowledged too now because of this fight. You can take some rounds off in boxing, learn what your opponent's doing, and then come on like a wave of momentum later because you have those rounds to give away. With only five rounds in an MMA fight, it's more pivotal to get going and get busy right away. Algermaine Sterling was able to stick and move with his kicking game throughout that first round. But many would argue effectiveness and significancy. Many of us would already point to, we're calling Peter Yan the heavier handed of the two and the harder striker of the two. So by definition, his significant strikes are more significant because Sterling is not planning his feet. He's not trying to land with the same kind of authority. Sterling does land, outland Yon 19 to 13 in significant strikes in that first round. But to me, the pressure and the pace, and when you see somebody having to back pedal move, and we learned this in the Robbie Lawler, Carlos Condon fight, that will the party that is backpedaling, moving, may be landing, that's not exactly going to be respected by the judges. Well, forward pressure, that octagon control is supposed to be like a third factor if everything else is evening. You've seen it in states like Texas be a major factor. So to many people, to myself, we were counting that forward pressure, not to mention the big overhands that Jan had landed towards the later stages of the round because, and we'll get to it, Mackenzie Dern lands one big right hand against Tisha Torres in the first round of their fight. And later on, you would see from the scorecards that that one right hand took the first round. Well, much in that same fashion, it felt like there was an overhand left, a left hook, if you will, from Peter Jan there towards the latter stages of the first round the most devastating, most significant strike of that first round, not to mention the effective grappling was in Jan's favor as he shut down Sterling's takedown attempts. Felt like a Peter Jan round, but if you want to say the kicking game because he landed a third more strikes, yes, six, a third more strikes than Peter Jan, I can understand that theory. I'm just saying that earlier on in the night with Mackenzie Dern and Tisha Torres, that theory was proven wrong because the judges had already set a precedent of how they were scoring. And the first round, we're spending a while on it because this is the controversial flip round. The second round is all Sterling took the back off of a wrestling scramble. That was a difference in this fight. Instead of just directly attacking with takedowns, you can see that Sterling understood he was not going to get the takedowns, but wanted to be able to take advantage of the fact that Peter Yan, much like a Justin Gaethje, he turns his back, he puts all fours on the ground, and he looks to tripod out of wrestling situations, out of the takedown, just giving his back to be able to hand fight. Well, instead of taking the hand fighting position, as Sterling did in the first fight, he did everything he could to sink in his hooks and get the body triangle locked in. From here, in the second round, we had spent three minutes and 50 seconds of Algermain Sterling on Peter Jan's back. A 17 to 4 significant strike advantage to Algermain Sterling and a 42 to 21 overall strike advantage in the round. 
there's been a lot of conversation and discussion about was this round so dominant, so one-sided and lopsided that we could call it a 10-8. I don't agree with the 10-8 because I didn't feel that there was ever a moment where Sterling was close enough to a stoppage. There was a pretty interesting moment where he had a half back mount, half mount situation, landing down right hands, but it didn't feel like the referee was close enough into the action to warrant a stoppage. I understand the rule, and this is where you have to understand the 10-8 the rule. You're more looking at now who won the round by a large margin. That is the letter of the law, where previously the letter of the law, we thought of 10-8s more as which party was closer to getting the finish? Was there multiple times where party A was on the verge of finishing party B? I did not see that kind of domination. Well, it was a one-sided round. I just thought it was a sure-fired 10-9 because we weren't close enough to a stoppage. The third round, more back control, body triangle still locked in, three minutes, 43 seconds, just seven seconds less of ground control time in this round from Aljamain Sterling, but a totally different story in the strikes. Not sure why it changed this much, but here we go. Six to eight in significant strikes in favor of Peter Yawn. And eight to 20 in favor of Peter Yawn in total strikes. So what we had there was... Peter Yan getting a lot of strikes off and trying to get out of the takedowns and to nullify the positions throughout this nearly eight minutes of ground control time. Aljamain Sterling registers zero submission attempts. He was very controlling, had that back position locked in. Aljamain Sterling looks as a master at taking the back and is a credible backpack. When we get to the fourth round, the tie completely changes. After two rounds of dominance, Peter Yan is able to take the top position, the control from Aljamain Sterling. And surprisingly enough, the round where one fighter had the most control time was the fourth round where Peter Yan racks up three minutes and 51 seconds. Goes 18 to 8 in significant strikes and 48 to 8 in overall strikes. We haven't had much of a conversation about a 10-8 in the fourth round for Peter Yan. Didn't think a finish was eminent, but it was obviously a Yan round. We could be 2-2. Two to two, We could be 3-1. to one. That's how it looked on two scorecards. The fifth round was Peter Yan backing up Sterling, landing right hands. Sterling would land, but again, it wasn't the same authority. It wasn't the same effect. This fight, again, was a split decision that went in the favor of Algermain Sterling. Peter Yan wins the significant strike battle, 63 to 62, it's one strike. He wins the overall striking battle by 48, 139 to 91. Dana White says that he feels like the judges blew it. It, it's a close first round. This was a close fight. If you said we wanted to do the trilogy and we're running these two right back, I'm sure the Sterling camp wouldn't be happy about it, but I wouldn't see it as ludicrous or just far out there. 
it appears now because he was there live in Jacksonville that TJ Dillashaw's knee is ready to get back to training. He will be next for Aljermaine Sterling, according to Dana White. For Peter Yawn to get back into title contention, I think that starts with a matchup with Aljermaine Sterling's teammate, the number six ranked Bantamweight, Marab Dabashvili. They've said it's on site. They've had some words already. I think that that's the way to go, especially because Marab has the skill set to exploit these same advantages that Sterling was able to utilize. Causing scrambles, getting to the back, not taking a minute of a fight off, where Peter Yan seems to manage his energy more. <laughs> Excuse me again. Maybe we'll see a Yan who is more aware of not giving a round, giving away rounds as we go forward. Now, if that Marab Dabashvili fight is not able to come together because maybe Yan takes off some time and Marab gets a fight here soon and they go in opposite directions. Well, later on this month, we have a Bantamweight main event where Marlon Vera takes on Rob Font. And I can see the winner or the loser of that fight being matched up with Peter Yan, a former world champion, could be a last hurdle before you get to a number one contender fight. Had a lot to say there about that one. And you'll hear more about it. I'm sure we'll have more, a lot more on, on MMA after hours when I get to sit in front of Mr. Michael Carlisle. Now, our feature fight at USC 273, a fight of the year contender, Hamzat Chimaev, Gilbert Burns. I first can't understand how people were somewhat disappointed with Hamzat Chimaev. The hype machine was too fast. Too many locomotives, too many yachts, too many speeding bullets. This hype train, Hamzat Chimaev, he couldn't possibly actually reached these expectations that he was just going to smash through everybody, including Gilbert Burns. Like Gilbert Burns, who was a four-time ADCC BJJ champion, an incredible grappler, one of the four best welterweights on the planet. And yes, Hamza Chimaev does beat him by unanimous decision. First round, Chimaev, he's losing the round. Burns is landing big overhands, even though he's on his back foot. A switch stance, from going from the orthodox to the southpaw. So it's a lead power jab from Chimaev, drops Burns. Chimaev is able to get on top. A slashing elbow cuts open the Brazilian. And this is where Chimaev is able to steal what was a bad first round. In the second round, Chimaev is still pushing forward. But this time, the hooks land right on the chin. And Gilbert Burns tests that chin. The knockdown happens, but the lights stay on. Chimaev is able to keep fighting back. The rounds are now one apiece because Gilbert Burns gets two knockdowns in that second round, at least on my money. Maybe you call one of them a slip. Round three, Chimaev is holding the center, pushing forward. Beautiful one-two. A great right uppercut on the night. You see Burns firing back with the right hands. This is a knockdown dragout war. Burns looked exhausted, but still able to fire back rightfully the first and the third round go in favor of Chimaev. I've seen some people feeling this is a bit controversial, but it's nowhere near the controversy of the co-main event. Chimaev, it's impossible to live up to where you expected him to be, to be even more dominant than John Jones, to be the next Habib Nurmagomedov. Habib was not pushed this fast 
this far in the rankings. He had time to progress his skills throughout his run in the UFC. Chimaev is already dancing with the top of the division, just five fights in. He beats a number three in the world. You're thinking about it. Covington, that's who's next, according to Dana White. That fight is going to be planned for the next UFC on ABC. If Covington, Chimaev, Burns, Edwards, the champion Usman. Yeah, this is pretty special trajectory for the 27-year-old Hamzat Chimaev. I was impressed with the performance. We hadn't seen him get hit. We hadn't seen him get tired, dragged into the deep waters. His wrestling wasn't working. He even had to spend off some Burns takedowns, ate some big shots. We learned a whole lot about Hamza Chiamaya that right now he is as good as we thought. He is in a realm of reality, of expectations of reality, as good as any welterweight on the planet, better than most of them, actually. And he is right there on the cusp of being able to fight for a title. Gilbert Burns, on the other hand, the 35-year-old, gave it his all. Came in with an incredible camp, came in and made Chimaev work harder than anybody ever has and hit him with the biggest shots that he ever has. Gilbert Burns, maybe he's in line to fight below Muhammad. That's if below Muhammad is not victorious this coming weekend. We'll talk about that fight in a moment. Maybe instead, if Muhammad wins, you go Gilbert Burns versus Neil Magny. Those two also, that keeps you in the mix, in the division, will kind of reset you a little bit further down the division. I could like that one for Gilbert Burns. So I'm saying it's either going to be Bilal Muhammad or Neil Magny. Now, the other fight that I feel was controversial on the scorecards is the split decision. I mentioned it a moment ago. Mackenzie Dern versus Tisha Torres. Mackenzie Dern was getting hit with the Torres sidekicks, and Torres would catch Dern as she's charging in by sliding off to the right, hitting an angle to her left and landing the right hand. Dern in the second round would just charge all the way in, get the fight into the clinch, would get a straight arm lock working, and would then climb her way up Torres to get the fight to the ground, turning Torres into a pretzel, but Torres able to survive. The third round, Torres would get back to using her striking. High kick would land across the face, a very damaging blow. The side kicks were still working. And even when they hit the ground, a foot right to the chest from Torres to Durham would cause would create the space, allowing Torres to get back up. For my money, thought this fight was all about the striking in the first and the third round of Torres. But one huge right hand in that first round that would leave a mark under Torres's eye and would have her legs momentarily wobble before she started firing off sidekicks again, was so significant that it swayed the judges to give that first round to Mackenzie Dern. No knockdown, no prolonged offense followed up, but that one strike was considered so devastating that it changed the complexion of the fight. So it does lead us to believe one strike can win a round but it just didn't in the co-main event. Opening up the pay-per-view, Marco Madsen tested, eats some right hands, gets hammered by leg kicks, but gets back to his wrestling, gets the takedowns in the second and third, and is still unbeaten, taking a decision over Vince Pichel. The prelims finished off with Ian Gary being tested by Darian Weeks. Gary firing off at range, 
being able to stuff takedowns, excellent combinations. Did get held on the fence in the third, but Gary was really able to mix levels, stuck his jab, hammering leg kicks. The Irishman still unbeaten. A nice victory. Let's see how the UFC match makes him. I'd like to see him test it a little bit more, but with the fan base, the hype, the clout, I think we may be seeing a little bit more of a temper rise giving Gary the opportunity to fully develop and optimize his skills. And I'm not saying that guys shouldn't be put in that position, but a Darian Weeks has been put in the opposite position, coming in at 4-0 to the UFC, and has been given Brian Barberina and Ian Gary for his first two fights. Some guys get better matchups than others, is what I'm saying. In middleweight action, Anthony Hernandez relies on his grappling, his wrestling, his pressure to get the decision win over a debuting Josh Frampton. First round pressure, takedown, threatening chokes from Hernandez. Second round, Frampton would get his own takedown, some short right hands, but Hernandez looked to have tired out Frampton and was forcing him into defending a choke late. The gas tank would be fuller on the Hernandez side in the third round as he won the scrambles, got the fight to the ground. Six minutes of control time is why Anthony Hernandez gets the decision victory. In women's bantamweight action, Raquel Pennington popping the jab, coming over the top with a follow right hand, doing very well. Aston Ladd. Had some of our own connections in the pocket, but nothing that we could really point to that was a consistent, consistently there where Pennington, the jab, the right hand, mixing in a body shot, getting a couple take, surviving being taken down a couple of times by Ladd. Pennington gets this decision victory, calls out Sarah McMahon for a number one contender bout. I think that the Holly Holm, Caitlin Vieira fight in May is more likely to be a number one contender fight. But you got to think about it realistically. If Nunez beats Pena, they're probably going to a trilogy fight. If Pena beats Nunez, I think the Vieira home winner is probably fighting Pena. But if we have that trilogy fight, you could be looking at the home Vieira winner facing a hypothetical winner of Pennington McMahon. So I like the call out. I just don't think that it's an actual number one contender bout, but it could lead to a number one contender bout. Huge knockout. Canada's Mike Malott. Welcome to the UFC. Clipping Mickey Gall, putting him down and a big left hook. Ground strikes to finish it off. Mike Malott, keep an eye on him. And it's an unfortunate turn for Mickey Gall who has not been able to really put it all together. I've seen the grappling look great. I've seen the striking look great. It just doesn't feel like it's come together in one fight. The early prelims, heavyweight action was the featured fight of the early prelims, and Alexi Alenik will surviving getting lit up by Jared Vendera. Alenik reaching with his punches, not bringing his legs with him. It looked like this was going to be a devastating knockout, but Alenik is able to wrap up Mandera, pull guard, dive on a leg, cause a scramble, take the back, advance to mount, switch the hips, go to side control, rack up, wrap up his patented scarf hold, crank on that neck until the scarf hold leads to the submission. Bandera 
Ugh. It was nasty how the submission left him afterwards. Remaining unbeaten, Pierre Rodriguez defeats Kay Hansen. Hansen got takedowns, two of them early on. The first round was her best round, but things would go downhill from there as Rodriguez would take the ground control with a takedown. A minute and 45 control in the second round, 23 to 7 in significant strikes. Rodriguez would get two more takedowns. In the third round, also landing a couple beautiful hooks to win the second and third and get the decision victory. Opening up the card, Julio Arce weathered the storm of the debuting Daniel Santos, continual use of his jab, finding a home for his left high kick against the Santos arms. Santos, poor energy management, big explosive movements without a setup early on, and would try to even do that late, just exploding, not setting it up. They were easy to read from Julio Arce, who excellent footwork and angling in this fight, landing power hooks. Two and one now at 135, a beautiful win for Julio Arce. Now we're going to go over to the fight announcements from the UFC. The UFC fight night on April 30th has had a switch of things in a heavyweight matchup. Justin Taffa is out, and Andre Arlovsky is stepping in on short notice to face Jake Collier. And in featherweight action, in addition to the card, we'll see Andre Touchy Feely versus Yo Anderson Brito. The UFC 275 card on June 11th has added an incredible rematch as Zhang Wei Li, Joanna Jacek too, has been verbally agreed to for the card in Singapore. The UFC fight night on June 18th has added a middleweight matchup where Kyle Dacus will take on Roman Delize. UFC fight night on June 25th has a heavyweight addition as Josh Parisian will take on Alan Boudot. The UFC fight night on July 9th, we'll see Sidyabuk Karakmanov versus Ronnie Lawrence. Also an interesting bit of UFC news, Triple C, the former Olympic gold medalist, UFC flyweight and bantamweight champion, current Eagle FC commentator and fight-ready coach, Henry Cejudo has announced he'll be entering back into the USADA program. And he set his sights on both of this past weekend's championship winners, Aljermaine Sterling and Alexander Volkanovsky, wanting to reclaim his division and wanting to become the first three-division MMA champion have been the goals that Henry Cejudo has put out. We got some Bellator news. Bellator 277 this weekend. We're going to preview it in a moment, but I wanted to mention that former middleweight champion Rafael Carvalho has re-signed with the promotion. He is going to be replacing Tony Johnson to jump in on short notice to take on Davidovich Yachimiranov. Bellator 278 has a adjustment and an addition. The addition is a welterweight matchup that will see Scotty Howe against Dante Shiro. The adjustment is that Josh Hill has been forced out of his Bantamweight Grand Prix alternate bout, and he will be replaced by Nikita Mikhailov, who will be taking on Enrique Brenzola. The winner of that one will beat Magomed Magomedov in the Bantamweight Grand Prix 
quarterfinals. The promotion has also announced the signing of unbeaten bantamweight Sorodan Kamidov. Bellator 278 has in, in France has announced the addition of Lorenz Larkin versus Anthony Adams at middleweight. That is going to be a fun striking battle. Bellator 281 has announced a middleweight addition that will see Ireland's own Charlie Ward against Alan Carlos. And Bellator 282, June 24th, as a lightweight addition, top 10 fighters, Brett Premis will be facing Alexander Shibley. And LFA news, don't forget LFA 131 is in Wisconsin on May 6th. There's been a little bit of adjustments to the first PFL event of the regular season, which is April 20th. Anthony Pettis has been moved back a week. Clay Collard versus Jeremy Stevens has been moved up to the main event on top of Lush Manfio versus Don Match. That card will also still see Joshua Silverio versus Emilio Sorde and Antonio Carlos Jr. versus Dylan Monte in the light heavyweight division. And the latest lightweight edition, OAM, Olivier Aubameyang will take on the two-time PFL champion, Natan Schultz. Ahead of us this weekend, don't forget that CFFC is on UFC Fight Pass. Fit NHB's Ty Milner going to be debuting with that promotion. 1-0 as a pro. The kid is a very Tim Means-like striker coming out of that same camp, that same mold. I've said physically. If you see him physically, he resembles a young Carlos Condit. Also on UFC Fight Pass this weekend, you have LFA, a heavyweight title fight in Minnesota. LFA 129, Thomas Peterson defends the title against Waldo Cortez Acosta. Both fighters are 5-0. Peterson, a two-time state champion in Minnesota, a three-time All-American, a June, a June Co. national champion, and wrestled D1. Peterson has grown up in the LFA, 8-0 overall. He's 5-0 as a professional, 4-0 as an amateur, 4-0 as a pro, 8-0 in the LFA cage. Will WCA, Waldo Cortez Acosta, five professional wins in MMA, six as an amateur in MMA, 10 pro wins as a boxer, five of those coming by knockout. This is wrestler versus boxer. This is old school MMA, but WCA, has two wins by knockout and one by Kimura. So there's a bit of ground game that you must respect. Peterson must mind his P's and Q's. You have a co-main event in the flyweight division where well-traveled veteran Matt Brown takes on exciting Brazilian prospect Carlos Malta. Malta coming, looking to rebound off of his first professional loss, falling, failing to claim the LFA flyweight title. On the other side, you've got Matt Brown who has two wins over John Castaneda, and he's also fought Chico Camus and Derek Minner. He's fought in incredible competition and has finishes in four of his last five wins. Malta, the BJJ prospect, and don't forget about the crushing body kick he landed in his LFA debut. 5-0 Hyder Amel is taking on Devante Sewell in the feature fight. Amel, 3-0 in Bellator. Of his 5-0 record, he has four finishes. Three of those come by TKO. 
Sewell, nine rec- victories on his record, six of them coming by submission. He has four guillotines, two rear naked chokes. Amel is going to want to look to keep this one standing. Ryzen, Fighting Federation, 35 going down this weekend. Wanted to throw that one out real quick as you have that in the middle of the morning from Friday to Saturday. Roberto de Souza, Johnny Case for the Ryzen lightweight title. The Ryzen featherweight title is on the line as Haruto Ushika takes on Yutaka Saito. And the women's atomweight title is on the line as Ayaka Kamasaka takes on Suzuka Azua. And that is coming up after Bellator 277. Friday night. It is the rematch. It is a championship doubleheader. It is the featherweight world title on the line. And in the co-main event, you get the light heavyweight Grand Prix finals and the world titles on the line. So let's start that off at the main event. AJ McKee Jr., 18-0, defending against Patricio Pitbull. Friday, McKee, 10 first-round finishes in those 18 wins. 13 finishes overall. Six knockouts, seven submissions. Has the reach advantage. We can't pinpoint the beautiful jab and right hand that we can on a Patricio Pitbull Friday. But A.J. McKee, as he's been molded and guided through Bellator his entire career, has proven that this process can work and can create a next-level kind of fighter. McKee, in his last five fights, would be Pat Curran, Georgie Katahanian, Derek Compost, Darian Caldwell, and with that standing guillotine, took the belt from Pitbull. There's something special about McKee, his athleticism, his length, his ability to improve, and his improbable ability to pull off submissions like he did against Darian Caldwell. And to be innovative, his long limbs are totally utilized in the right way. Could he use that jab and stay out of distance a little bit more as a striker? Yeah, before those long limbs, a beautiful inside striking game. And as I've went on and on about McKee, you have to respect the champion Pitbull. 11 knockouts, 12 submissions, 7-1 in his last eight. Two guillotine chokes, two TKOs, 12 first-round finishes. The jab, the power, it is present and always there, ready to lop someone's head off at a moment's notice. I'm taking the young guy. I'm taking McKee. I'm taking the promise. I'm taking that he has been able to develop and grow in leaps and bounds in every fight. And I don't see why that would stop now. I don't see McKee as being a guy that's satisfied at the top. I think he still wants to capture that balance for lightweight title. I think that this is another moment that we realize Bellator has some true superstars and incredible world-class talent in their on their roster. The co-main event, as I mentioned, Vadim Nemkov defends the Bellator light heavyweight title while also looking to win the Grand Prix against former Ultimate Fighter champion Corey Anderson. Yes, the Ultimate Fighter champion. Vadim Nemkov, a nine-fight win streak. Five of those coming by knockout. Overall, nine knockouts, three submissions. That's 12 finishes. That's 80% finishing rate for Vadim Nemkov. Corey Anderson, 16-5. and five. And Let's just look at it right now. Bellator. In the Bellator run, Corey Anderson is 3-0. TKOs of Ryan Bader, Yagshir Muradov, and Melvin Manhoof. Just ran through the competition. Wool, 
We have to acknowledge that Vadim Nemkov's takedown defense looked great against Ryan Bader, against Phil Davis. We saw a submission game against Julius Lugliskas. Corey Anderson's game, the striking authority that he has, the way he's putting together his boxing, it's on a different level than what Nemkov has had to deal with. The wrestling, the chaining it together, the fact that overtime, Anderson, an incredible cardio base for a light heavyweight. I think this fight pushes Nemkov, and it's written all over it. The winner here at worst, you're arguing me, is the third best light heavyweight in the world. Maybe you're giving Glover a little more right now, respect. Maybe you're giving Yuri Prochaska and his youth the respect, the UFC. But I'm saying Vadim Nemkov, Corey Anderson winner, argument to be the best in the world, at very least number three. This is a spectacular fight. You're wondering if Nemkov will be able to go to his leg kicks or if Anderson will just be able to eat them up and that will give him the pathway to getting this fight to the ground. I actually got a favorite Corey Anderson in this one. I feel like he's been on a different level with a different run and a different intensity, but Vadim Nemkov has turned back every champion that's been put in front of him, talking about Liam McGarry isn't in Bellator anymore, talking about Rafael Cavallo was cut from Bellator, and talking about beating Bill Davis twice and Ryan Bader. This one could be a coin toss. In featherweight action, in the feature fight position, Aaron Pico on his five-fight win streak is going to be taking on short notice replacement Ali Jafari, Jafari is replacing Jeremy Kennedy. Kennedy with 20 fights under his belt. Jafari with a very nice record for a prospect, 9-1. But this is a jump up to this level, to that elite level of competition. And I don't know if he's going to be ready for it. Jafari has a solid head and arm choke, as we saw at XMMA for Black Magic. But I don't know if you're going to get the opportunity on the ground to lock up that specific submission. Pico has just been destroying guys, rear naked chokes, overhand rights, left hooks, anacondas. We're seeing Aaron Pico come into his own. That was a huge win against Justin Gonzalez in his last fight. And we are talking about, and we are on the realm, the possibility of Pico McKee sooner than later. Opening up that main card, got it listed as it's going to be Tim Johnson versus Linton Vassell. Vassell, probably the better ground and pound. On paper, Johnson's the better wrestler. I think he's the more fluid striker. May actually have a slight speed advantage. But the key to this fight is going to be which party can get on top. On the prelims, there's two fights I wanted to point out. You have Terrell Fortune against Raheem Cleveland. Cleveland is replacing Steve Mowry. That, that was going to be an incredible fight. Terrell Fortune coming in off of the setback. Looking to regain, he's back in the win column. This is a ranked fighter. Again, not taking on ranked competition. 13 fights into his career. I think this is an opportunity, though, where Fortune has to make a statement on the prelims to get back to the main card. Cleveland, 14 losses. Eight of them come by submission. 22 wins. Most of those coming by finish. Cleveland, with a very good submission game, offensively has power but you got to favor the wrestler. Also in the welterweight division, we have Kyle Critchmeyer taking on Michael Lombardo. Critchmeyer has won four of five, three by decisions. Well, Lombardo 
His last two wins coming in some big spots. On the Contender Series, he beat Corey Coop and then went to the PFL and beat Kyron Bowden. Also, a shout-out, go to the website, cageminds.com. Got an interview up with Caleb Ramirez. He'll be taking on Bobby Soriano, Sorino, the third on the prelims. Bobby is a jiu-jitsu player, it looks like. Caleb, he likes to strike, and his wrestling is really coming along. Now, after Bellator, again, don't forget, early in the morning, between... The UFC and Bellator, you do have that Ryzen Fighting Federation 35 card featuring three world title fights. Saturday night, it's UFC Fight Night, Luque versus Muhammad. Main event, number four ranked Vicente Luque, 21-7-1, taking on the number five ranked 20-3, former Titan FC champion, Bilal Muhammad. Luque, 11 wins by knockout eight by submission, a four-fight win streak. He's beaten that time Nico Price by TKO, Randy Brown by KO, and has submitted with Bar with the Barboa choke, both Michael Chiesa and Tyron Woodley. And I've been told it's not actually a Barboa choke, that that was a Darish choke, because a Barboa choke, you have to have a gi on to be able to do. So you can't actually do a Barboa choke in MMA. And if I'm getting that wrong, I meant to switch the word Barboa for Anaconda or vice versa early morning. Bilal Muhammad has won his last six outside of getting poked in the eye by Leon Edwards. Those last two wins come over Damian Maya and Wonderboy. If Bilal Muhammad's going to win, there's a 75% chance this will be a long, grueling fight. 15 of his 25 wins come by the decision. Here's where the stats lie, and here's where it starts to get interesting. We love Vicente Luque because he's an all-action fighter that puts it out there on the line. He lands 5.65 strikes per minute on 54% accuracy, while Muhammad is 4.55 strikes landed per minute on 43% accuracy. But we get to the absorbed, and here's where things start to change, where you're like, wow, you see one, almost one strike more per minute, a little bit more than landed for Luque. But Luque absorbs 5.67 strikes per minute. It's actually 0 0.02 strikes more per minute. He's really even, even though he does it while defending 52% of strikes. It's telling you, Luque gets into firefights. Well, on the other side, Bilal Muhammad has a 0.9 plus in what he lands to what he absorbs, only absorbing 3.61 strikes per minute of 59% defense. And you also must keep in mind an exquisite submission game from Vicente Luque, but Bilal Muhammad has a 91% takedown defense, but his game will be changed up fighting Luque because Muhammad likes to threaten the takedowns, at least two per fight, mixing in the striking and the grappling. His jab to his leg kick is some of his best work. This one, if it goes long, you feel like Bilal Muhammad is going to be able to get his work done and will have kept Luque at bay. If Luque gets in there and makes this one a brawl, he could get finished. He could get the finish. But the odds makers are finding Luque the favorite. These last four wins, two of them over elite level competition. His grappling was underrated after the submission of Michael Chiesa. You have to be putting some respect on that name. And Luque comes in as a minus 170 favorite. Well, Muhammad is your plus 150 underdog.
Now, as we look at the rest of this card, we're going to head through it. And, you know, I'm an MMA, UFC, hardcore. It's why we do the media, because we love the sport and we want to put it on top. But you have to acknowledge, not all fight nights are the same. What I saw listed as the co-main event is Kai Baralo, 10-1, versus Gazin Omar Gazinev, who's 13-0. Both fighters coming off the contender series. Baralo has won nine in a row. He has seven finishes, four knockouts, three submissions. While on the other side, Gardinius has five submissions, eight knockouts, seven first-round finishes for his unbeaten 13-0 record. In women's bantamweight action, you got Myra Buenasosa versus Jan Wu. So Silva has five submissions. Oh, Myra Buenasova has five submissions, two, two, and one in the UFC. She'll look to get this one to the ground. Where Yan Wu, I really feel like she's going to look to keep this one striking. That's where she has a bigger advantage. Six wins by knockout, even though she's one and three in the UFC, also with a solid ground game, having five wins by submission. What I have pegged as fight of the night, going to be a tremendous striking affair. Andre Fialho takes on Miguel Laeza. Fialho, 14 wins, 11 coming by knockout. He's 4-1 in his last five. The one loss is that short-notice UFC debut. On the other side, Miguel Baeza, seven knockouts, but he's lost his last two, including getting knocked out by Chaos Williams. Baeza was at the top of that welterweight prospect look. I'm talking about, hey, why are people talking about Chimaev and... Rachmaninoff and Brady and not adding in Baeza into that mix. That's where I was at two fights ago, two losses, and Baeza is fighting for his spot on the roster. Featherweight action, we got Pat Sabatini on a five-fight win streak. Don't forget about a heel hook and two decision wins inside of the octagon. He's taking on TJ Laramie. Laramie 4-1. That one was his last fight where he ran into a Derek Minner guillotine. You got to keep it out of the grappling realm if you're Laramie against Sabatini or else it's going to be a quick finish for Sabatini. The feature prelim, again, as I'm seeing it, you got the car close taking on Brandon Jenkins. Close with wins over Landon Venata, Bobby Green, and Chris Chagos before losing to Benil Dariush. He's right there on the cusp, a win streak, and you could see close two fights, three fights, he's right there from getting an opportunity to face a top 15 foe once again. Brennan Jenkins, three and one in his last four. Spectacular flying knee knockout in the PFL to get his UFC contract. Didn't work out in his debut, but Jenkins is always willing to scrap kind of party, and I think he will be game, but I'm looking for Cart for close to wear him down and get the finish. In welterweight action, Rafa Garcia takes on Jesse Ronson. Garcia defeated Natan Levy in his UFC debut. Well, in his welcome back to the octagon, Ronson submitted Nicholas Dalby by rear naked choke. I like the way Ronson looks at 170. I've always loved his technical press striking ability. He is good at hitting angles. Well, on the other side, I think Garcia is going to look to make this a brawl. If they do hit the ground, we've seen Garcia was able to hold his own against Natan Levy, but I'm still giving Ronson an edge here because I feel like he's just the more technical striker. In heavyweight action, we got Chris Barnett. Yes, back from the wheel kick, taking on Martin Boudet, who's 9-1. and one. 
This is a size discrepancy. Of course, Barnett's used to it. He's always been a heavyweight. 5-9 against Boudet, who's 6-4. Boudet, a eight-fight win streak, seven knockouts. This is his debut in the UFC after beating a Lorenzo Hood on the Contender Series. What does Bidet have to offer, and how will he do against a 29-fight bet who's ultra-athletic? And you're going to look at a 5'9 heavyweight. You're going to underestimate him, but then you will get kicked in the head unexpectedly. That one, there's a lot of times where you're like, the UFC puts a random sloppy heavyweight fight on the card. I don't feel like that one's going to be it. I feel like that one is going to be a fight that leads to a prospect really getting on the radar. Lena Landsberg versus Penny Kinsad happening in the women's bantamweight division. Landsberg is 2-1 in the last three fights, but that's only three fights in the last three years. Well, Kinsad has won four or five, and we've seen major improvements in her striking game and her clinch game. Look for Kinsad. is coming off of a loss to get back on track. Women's bantamweight action, Sam Hughes, violent finisher, taking on Brazilian striker, who's a bit more tactical, Islena Nunez. In men's bantamweight action, you got Helene Antillian taking on Kevin Kroom. Kroom, this will be his first time back at 35 since 2015. How does the weight cut affect him if it drains too much of his chin? Helene has three wins by knockout, likes to strike this one. This one could get crazy, could get wild, definitely because a Kroom fight always does that. In the lightweight division, you got Trey Ogden versus Jordan Lovett. Ogden, two wins by rear naked choke. One arm triangle. He's two inches taller. We've seen Ogden stumble and get submitted, get tricked in playing the grappling game with guys that are just a little bit better on the evening. He needs to keep this one standing because Levette may be that. Jordan has a heel hook one, arm triangle one, inverted triangle, anaconda. A true nuisance on the ground, always threatening for submissions. Look for Ogden to keep this one going on the feet. And opening up the card, at least of what I got, you have light heavyweights at heavyweight as Devin Clark takes on William Knight. We saw against Maxine Grisham that the wrestling was a problem. Clark must mind his P's and Q's on the entries because he could easily get knocked out by even just a short right hook from such a powerful man as William Knight. But Knight does not have that level of wrestling that Devin Clark does look for Clark to make a grueling 15-minute affair out of this one with William Knight. This has been Cage Minds MMA Show. Keep up with Cage Minds on social media. Cage Minds Combat Sports News on Facebook, at Cage Minds underscore CSN on Instagram. And over on Twitter, it's at Cage Minds MMA. My Twitter is at Franco Micah. The YouTube is Cage Minds MMA Show. Whether you're watching or listening, you are appreciated. Sorry the show got up a little bit late this week. Thank you all again.